everyone, what's up? Chad Grills. Welcome to another episode of The Mission Daily. I'm joined by Ian Faison and special in-studio guest, Mike Solana, VP at Founders Fund. Mike, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. We're excited to have you here. Ian, how are you doing today? You know, it's uh, it's another gorgeous day here, and I'm just excited to talk to Mike. He's uh, got a new podcast out with Founders Fund, and just good times. Now to be next, subscribe now. Yes, it's an epic podcast um, for anyone who like science, fixing real hard world problems. Space, Space. Mars. Yeah, building a new world on an alien planet. Pretty intense topics, to say the least. But Mike, today. Yeah, today is all about you, sir. We wanted to bring you in. You have some really cool experiences. And I was hoping that we could kind of like go through your story, your journey, and see if we can't tease out a couple stories for the audience. Um, so let's jump into it. Great. You were born in New Jersey. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing, uh, early life, school, um, some of your interests. How did it all get going? That's interesting. People don't usually ask me about this. Taking um, it back. Yeah, let's go all the way. Let's take it from the beginning. Uh, yeah, so New Jersey, I grew up in Tom's River, New Jersey. Uh, I'd say just working class, middle class town. My mom was a teacher. My dad was in construction slash also then became a teacher. He started as a teacher, then went into construction, then became a teacher again. Um I would say, uh, yeah, it was just kind of your 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 sort of typical middle class type of life. Siblings, except, yeah, I've got two older siblings and a younger younger sister. Um, I think that my parents' backgrounds are what made things maybe a little different for me growing up. So my mom grew up very poor in the projects in New York. I was pregnant very young uh, with my oldest sister. I don't want to get too much maybe into her story, but it was had a very difficult life that she kind of sure. never really let define her. Uh, from a very early age, I think she realized that she deserved better and more and told a story about herself where she was great and kind of a hero of her own journey. Uh, and then she manifested that into her life. And that was always really inspiring to me to watch her go uh, to, to kind of hear where she came from and to then see everything that she built. You know, she started as a as a teacher's aide with no college education at a school that she then became a teacher at uh, while going back to college full time. Then an administrator. Now she runs it, um, and it's probably the best school for autism in the entire state of New Jersey. I'm super proud of all that. Uh, my dad is a Vietnam War vet, and um, and I don't know. I think especially since I've been out here in San Francisco surrounded by people who, uh, you know, amazing people, talented people, smart people, but there are a lot of like rich people out here. A lot of rich people who kind of went to Ivy leagues. I'm surrounded by people who went to Ivy league schools, uh, whose parents went to Ivy league schools, um, who grew up with a lot of money. I actually grew up thinking that we had a lot of money. Right. Isn't um, that the funny thing? It's though, right? crazy. <laughs> I, I really thought, I mean, we, it was a middle-class town, but I thought that we, cause we had maybe a little more than, just like abundance. Some of my friends. And then I came out here and I'm like, oh, okay. This is what money is. Got it. Well, as a kid, you only have a certain frame of reference. So like you only know like the rich kid on the block, right? But like that's the only like rich you don't know kid how that you rich know. Yes. the rich kid on the block right. is. No, yeah. yeah. I mean, you have no idea. There, like, there's like size of the house, how nice their cars are. That's it. Yeah. It's like you don't know if they get to go to cool summer camps. And like, we weren't even that. It's like just the fact that I think I had a car. And I don't know, I, I knew that, so once my mom became 
in uh, an administrator, there was a big salary bump and things just felt different. You know, like we were a little looser with our money around the fa- <laughs> around the house Getting and a little crazy with it. And we weren't like, I mean, we weren't even ordering drinks. Like it was water at dinner when you went <laughs> oh, out to yeah. eat. It was like, it was very, re- like very, it, it was, it was, I would say modest. Yeah. Um, we didn't want for, for anything, right? Like we had everything we needed for sure. It was, but it, it's just, it was shocking. Uh, I was even a little embarrassed sometimes about the things that, like getting the car, I remember being really just mortified by that. I did not want a, a, that much help, like buying a car. Sure. What kind of car? Um, it was a Jetta, and we got it at cost because the first one we got was used, and I got that with my own money, and it uh, the Boss brakes didn't work, almost died, um, <laughs> and so they gave us a really, really, really cheap. It's look, at, do you hear me apologizing for it? I'm apologizing for I it. Know. I'm telling a story where I'm apologizing for getting this thing. Um, yeah, I've like never gotten over. This is crazy. I hate. I, I hate. I'm so uncomfortable right now talking about this. This is good stuff, though. Yeah, um, yeah. Keep going. But yeah, I mean that that was the kind of thing that I, I remember thinking, like, this is. I need to work for the things that I get, and this is embarrassing. Um, yeah, but then I came so out here, and it's where like, do you where do you think that came from, though? That that type of like conscientiousness. Well, it was just. I think I was so proud of, of of my parents for building the lives that they had built. And, sure. And that so that to me was like, oh well, that's the only way. That's that's the only thing that that's what cool is I, I never had this thing where i guess money for money's sake was never really impressive to me because it right. wasn't impressive to my parents they were always like well how'd you make it yes what, how, like, yeah. i don't they don't care it, it, my mom says something she's like if it's, if it's not going in my bank account why do i care um <laughs> and that's part of it but i think the other part is they both i don't know if they meant to but they definitely instilled in me this sense of like you should work for the things that you have you sh- you need to deserve good things the good things in your life you need to build them and, and and bring them and bring them to you did you have a job yeah always but that was not ever these are things my parents never forced me to do i just wanted one i love i love so, working god what was the first that was there, we, yeah. we talk about this all the time so that's why it's super interesting yeah how old were you what was it 13 i worked illegally at a uh army navy store but that it was the worst like a surplus store it was terrible it was uh how, how would you just i was so young and so not interested in army navy things that i don't know even how i would describe this I it's got to be like an army must navy be like a, surplus it was like a small store. yeah surplus yeah. and it was like sure. my friend's place i but i was in seaside heights and uh and that's where i learned about the boardwalk and so it, the very next summer i would consider this really my first real job was i worked on the boardwalk um, and that I was there like every day and I, I worked in the stands, the stands there, they had all these games that were like, so you put down a quarter or a dollar and you spin a wheel and if it lands on the spot you picked, you win a prize, maybe uh, a record or a CD or, um, sports memorabilia or cigarettes. I worked in a cigarette stand. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> and I was, I mean, I was, and I, lights I was, what's going on there? <laughs> I, I was selling, selling also cigarettes at a very young age to drunk people on the boardwalk. Um, and this is where I learned about, and so Seaside Heights was a very rough place. It was like loud, drunken people everywhere, music, craziness. Um, and I loved it. Every second of it. I loved working in the stands. I loved the idea of, so the stands were interesting because they, they changed seasonally. Not all of them. Some were like these heavy hitters. They always worked. But my boss was always uh, changing shops. So like this year, this kind of thing is popular. So we'll have a stand selling this or, uh, you know, always looking for new ideas on, on what he could do with his spaces. Um, I loved thinking about that and, uh, and then seeing how they worked and I loved working the stands and my job was to get people to play the game and then run this, the game. So, um, I was the one saying things like, 
uh, shouting out to the boardwalk like, here it is, guys. Try it out. One win choice. 25 cents to play. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it, was just, it was like so it was so fun. And as a, as a young kid, that's where I started just like the exhilaration of working with older people. I always loved working with people who were like at least five years older than me. They were like cool and they knew stuff um, and they were edgy. I remember this one girl was like this chain smoking raver and she had a bumper sticker on her car that said raving is not a crime. And I was like, wow, <laughs> these people are the coolest people alive. She's going to stand. She's um, buying her cigarettes. She's yeah. not, she's not playing a game. Of no, chance. she was just taking the cigarettes from the stand and she felt like, <laughs> oh, she, that's and she, felt like she deserved them in the Boston. She, he was like, that's fine. I'm not going to get involved in that. <laughs> um, and, uh, it was super empire records vibe, uh, so at, at, on the boardwalk, like on the ocean. Um, and it was just, yeah, started at 14, like learning about the world and ended in my early twenties. I remember just working in the last record stand in the world. Um, it was the last CD stand that existed. This is where they started. My boss started them and then they proliferated, especially throughout the eighties. Uh, and then, you know, with downloading music, people didn't want to play for CDs anymore and they just all went away. So I was working the last one. It was called stand five. And this one, unlike the rest of the stands actually overlooked the ocean. And I would just drink and look at the ocean. And sometimes there were fireworks at night, you know, I'd work bar hours. So I'd be there until two or three in the morning. Um, and I would play music and it was just, oh, it was just the coolest job ever. Have this is the best. Have you seen Adventureland? Yes, I have. It was, it, it was a lot like that. I will say that the people that I worked with were, um, more misfits and we were known, my job was filled with, it was like a super anarchist vibe. My boss just was an old hippie, not an old, he was like a baby boomer. So then he was probably in his what, fifties when I, when I knew him early fifties uh, and he just, just old to you at the time. Yeah. Though, like at, the, at the time old. I was like, that's the oldest you could possibly be. Yeah. Um, but, uh, he was very liberal and was like, anything goes. Uh, and so we just like, attracted all sorts of, it was like raver people and punk people and metal guys and, uh, old, like younger hippies, um, jocks. Like he, he was also a sports writer. So we would bring in like wrestlers or baseball players, just bizarre mix and we did not have uniforms we just came as we were it was like the x-men but <laughs> my, my first job was a water world i was 15 i was a lifeguard my buddy couldn't swim so he was the tube guy so he's the guy like rent five dollar tubes at at water world so i know what the great part about those type of jobs early on is like you learn to mess like to mess around with your friends just as much as you learn to like work because you're like, Hold, I have money now and yeah. I just get to blow this on fun stuff. Yeah. Like there's like, there's, there's that, like, you're like, I'm not going to be responsible with, at least for me. Uh, <laughs> like I'm not going to be responsible with this money that I earned. You know, I think it's a job also, we, I was just, just actually having a conversation about this uh, with my colleagues and like there was this weird question of like, well, you know, do you actually, is a job, that we all have this assumption that it's important. What do you really get from it? You know, my impulse is it's the most important thing ever. You yeah, need to have too, a job. Yeah. Uh, but I had to defend it. And I thought, and I, what I finally hit on, the thing that I loved most about my job was, you know, you grow up going to high school, uh, you have your family, you have your high school, maybe you have your church or something. There are all these, there are all these uh, communities that were given to you and these structures that were handed to you. And, and it's really hard to understand how big the world is and how much more there is out there until you break outside of, of one of those places. And your job is a place that you choose and you don't have to stay there. A lot of people, you know, quit jobs all the time, but when you find one that, that you love and suddenly it's, it's your place, you know, your, your parents don't have any dominion there. Uh, no one from school has any dominion there. I remember like there were popular kids 
in high school where I was kind of just like neutral, right? And and on the boardwalk, they were irrelevant. And I remember seeing them and thinking like, wow, it's, it's crazy how these power dynamics just don't matter at all. And 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 when you have a job early on, you you learn that really, really early on that like these things that other people really, really, really care about, these, these uh, social approvals or whatever, I mean, they're just, yeah, they're just completely irrelevant. You, you choose your own community and you kind of write your own life. And the, the job really helped me, I think. I did, obviously was not thinking about it in those terms when I was 14. When I was sure. 14, yeah. I was like, this is fun. And these kids are cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But now I look back and I'm like, oh, that's what was happening. I was, I was creating a life that I actually enjoyed. Really interesting. So how, what was the first jump that you made outside of that local community that you were, you grew up in that you picked? Uh, did you, was it at college? Did you move away from home? What yeah. Did you do? I went to Boston, uh, university. I just wanted to live in a city. Yeah. Um, because you had seen them on TV or movies or what was the, what was the uh, appeal there? Honestly, this is such a bad reason, but I just wanted to be around more gay people. Gotcha. <laughs> that was yeah. it. And it's so dumb. I don't care. I'm not an identity politics person. I'm not like too many straight people. I'm not. Like, I just genuinely wanted to learn more about that part of myself. And was there a, like an active like gay culture in the New Jersey area or was it just no, still pretty like completely? I mean, this was like the early 2000s. I didn't know any gay people. I knew. Gotcha. I think I knew of one in my high and it's like a big high school too it's like there was one out kid i was not interested in being friends with that person i wanted to meet lots of people i it was like news numbers i wanted to meet like as many as i could and yeah. see if there were different types back then also in the early 2000s it was like i mean the only gay people that you even saw on tv were will and grace i was just type. gonna say that i wanted to and we can save it for later but like i wanted to know like how much media like influenced your perception of like where to go and what to do and that's yeah, well this i mean i don't know if this had i certainly wasn't wanting to move to a city because i wanted to find people like will and grace well yeah that's kind of what, yeah. <laughs> it was the opposite i was there was like this sense of dread i had i was really afraid that um maybe being gay meant acting just this one certain way and sounding this one certain way and liking this one set of things all of which by the way are fine and the older i get the more comfortable i am around like like around like drag culture and things i love drag culture right but but when i was a kid the idea that that this that being gay meant something deeper than who i was attracted to that it had to do with like who who i was that was really scary to me and i wanted to find more gay people to see if that was true and and you know i was praying that it wasn't and then, of course, obviously, you know, there are a million. I mean, gay people are just gay. They're, they're of every, they come <laughs> every size and shape and they like all sorts of different things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's the only reason I went to a city. I, I, yeah, I went to Boston University, lived in Boston. Uh, it was just to meet gay people. I ended up not meeting that many um, for a bunch of w- weird reasons that are complicated and personal. Not bad, just like. It's like a nebulous topic that I don't sure. feel like getting into. Uh, Can I tell a quick yeah, BU story? Because wait, so, or did you go to BU? No, no, no. no. Oh. I just uh, when I was um, whatever I was like eighteen or nineteen or whatever, uh, and it was like one of the first weekends. I'd never really been. I mean, I'd been to Boston as a kid, but like never as an adult. And so, like my first, my we were going to visit my buddy because uh, I was at West Point. So like we didn't have like weekends in like real college. So we we're like, oh, we're gonna go visit this guy. He's like a he's in the dorms at BU, so it had to be freshman year. And we're like, this is going to be so cool. It's like our first like. Do you, you remember know, what dorm it was? Do you remember what it was called? I, the West Campus? <laughs> gosh, I don't remember. 
I know that there was like I think tennis courts nearby. The or West something. Campus. Yeah. That's so where I lived. Really? Oh, this is great. What year was it? Uh, 2005, probably. I was still in. I was. Wow. I. I must have at that point. No, I. I, I was a junior, so I would have been not at West Campus. So, you just missed me. That's so funny. Um, that's so great. So we're like we pull up to Boston. We go to like meet this guy. We have no idea where anything is. Oh wait, I'm sorry. No, I was a sophomore. Uh, I would have been there. That's so funny. We were maybe in the dining hall together. Sorry. I know, right? <laughs> um, and so like we're trying to like figure out how to park. My buddy, uh, my buddy's dad would lend us their conversion uh, van. So they had like the one with the TV in it, like the big white van, conversion van. And so we would just go like barrel down. VCR uh, or no? Uh, oh yeah, VCR. Oh. oh yeah, it was great. I mean, it was great. Um, and you could set up a little wet bar in the back. It was like the best. But so anyways, so we show up. We're like trying to like car- parallel park in a spot and it's like on campus or whatever. And this guy... Uh, this guy on a bike, like we just like pull up and we like start pulling into a spot and this guy on a bike, as we like get out of the car, like rides by and just looks at us and gives us the middle finger. doesn't say a single word and just goes like this. (laughs) Yeah. And just like we, yeah, Boston is a wild, we're like, welcome to Boston. (laughs) It's an aggressive towny type place, which I didn't expect going in. I will say the cool thing for me about being in in Boston was. I, so, okay. So what happened was I, I got to Boston. I cared a lot about me. I, all I cared, I did not give a shit about, uh, well, I, I, I was studying. I felt like, you know, I was paying for college. Now I wanted to be very good and I was committed to doing well, but I was still, I was very focused on meeting guys. And, um, I ended up going on one date that went really poorly to the point where I was like, I don't ever want to even like get involved in this again. I was like, I just, it was, I was 18. I was like, Nope, not interested in this anymore. And I had this sort of hiatus where, um, I didn't, yeah, I didn't date or anything. And when you're in, suddenly you're there, you're in school and I'm in this place and it's bought, it's culture. Like you just described this kind of aggressive, weird towny type culture. They care about baseball. They, I mean, it's cold throughout the winter. I mean, really, really bitterly like people die from the cold in yep. Boston. Um, and I just started studying. I just wanted to, I just, I just apply, I just put everything into being the best in my classes. And I wanted to read the most. I wanted to have the best insights. I, I wanted to have the sharpest insights. Um, I would be the first in class. I would sit up front uh, at first and then I moved to the back, but I still talked constantly. Um, and I, I started, I developed this just, I got really into the idea of, of learning and engaging with, with, uh, with, I don't want to say, there's no way to, there's no non-pretentious way to say this, but like intellectual material, um, abstract concepts, especially I loved philosophy and, uh, weird cuts on history. Um, and, uh, and I, yes, like, I I think I went there looking for something like just city life, whatever that meant. And I would find that later, uh, as I got older, but what I ended up doing was just learning a lot and, how, so how did things change when you started engaging so heavily? Because I'm, like, I'm always fascinated with the idea that wherever we're at, there's typically way more opportunities in our local area than we might think. So how did things change or what type of opportunities started op- opening up for you when you started like really engaging with the material, with Be- the ideas, with the classes? Before yeah. you before you get into that, I also want to like quick caveat on Boston this time. The biggest like sports like <laughs> revolution ever yeah. in history yeah. happened in this exact period of time. Yeah. The the Sox won the 
first World Series in a hundred years. That yeah. they had, uh, the Patriots won three Super Bowls like right in, before that timeline. Yeah. Uh, like oh, Boston Celtics kick it in 2000. It's like a crazy sports right. time. So I'd like imagine people, it was sports and drinking. And I care yeah. not. I don't, and I don't want to trash. I'm not trying to say, oh, sports are dumb. I, I almost, I understand the beauty of them from afar. I get like the kind of poetry of, 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 uh, of baseball, especially. And especially when you go to Red Sox, the uh, Fenway Park, it's like this, you can feel the history there. And I kind of get it. I get where they're coming from. I just don't care myself. I just don't. <laughs> it's not my thing. Uh, and they were obsessed. Yeah, it's totally alienating. I know. That, that's what I was going to say. It's got to be like crazy. Like there's like parades. Like they won all these championships. There's like parades like literally every year yeah. for like a while. So yeah, I could. And you're sitting there like, got not going to the parade. Yeah. Got to hit the books. Yeah. It was like, I'm not into sports. I'm not dating. I have no more. All my friends. I'm far. Boston was far enough from Jersey that like I knew no one there. Right. And so then it's just, well, now what? And I'm going to start studying, I guess. And so school, I mean, I was always good enough in school to be in the, the, the good classes. Um, and I tested pretty well, but I never did any homework ever. Um, I got by, I think, just by being really likable to my teachers. Um, <laughs> and I would pick up enough to, to, to like pass the tests. And sure. I got like B's um, throughout. In... It, it wasn't really until college. This is sort of a long, does your mind? I feel like I'm being long winded, but so, I mean, I guess so we're here leading, up to, leading into college. There's one, I, I was, uh, I had this AP chem class. It's the only thing I did ever really, really poorly at in, in high school. Like, like where I almost failed, I should have failed multiple times, multiple quarters. He should have actually failed me, but he was just a nice guy. <laughs> um, and, and he should have failed me. I mean, I never once, I never, I never opened that that chemistry book. I don't even know what I was doing in there. I was just in this cloud. I would, I would draw cartoons in class. I would, I would write comic books. I would write stories. Um, and uh, so he was, he was gonna fail me, and uh, or he was gonna give me a D. And he's like, I'll give you a C if you drop the class. And it was the third, <laughs> the third quarter. And I was talking to my sister. I used to drive her home, and I would. This is something that I used to do to teachers all the time. I would be like, you know, I just, I try so hard. I just don't understand it. Um, and the truth was I wasn't trying hard at all. I wasn't even looking at the book. And, and so I was going through this thing, which was, had worked previously, and especially in like my math class. I think math teachers expect this from people to be really trying hard and not getting it. But they're nice kids anyway. So I definitely so, get that feeling. Yeah. So I'm making this argument, not argument, I'm kind of giving this line to my sister, saying it out loud, sort of as if I almost believe it myself. And she looks at me, she's like, Michael. I'm standing on your AP chemistry book right now. Like my feet are on your AP chemistry book. She was in the front, the passenger seat. Um, she's like, I have stepped on this book every day, all year. You've never opened it. <laughs> and, and that was so that that was the first time I was like, wait a minute, you know, what if like, maybe I could do good. Maybe I could, maybe I could get this stuff. Maybe, sure. if, maybe if I like really pursued it, I would understand it. And so I started that last that last quarter of high school, I did really, really well, but it wasn't until college when I was super isolated that suddenly I, I, I applied that, that, that idea that like, if you just read the chapter, um, maybe twice, uh, and then engage with the material in class, it's like more fun. It's fun to know stuff. It yeah. feels good to know stuff. It's super empowering. And then the, the, once you know a few things and the teacher starts relying on you to have the answer, that feels good. It's like this sure. huge ego boost. And then you're the smart kid in class all of a sudden. Uh, it was weird to go from high school where I was, I was a theater kid to college where I was known as, I was known as the smart one. I was the, they were like, Oh, he's like the top of this class. I was always one or two. Um, 
And, you know, the class size was, I think, twice as big as my high school. So that just felt good. And I think anyone could do it. You have to just study. You have to apply yourself. Yeah. You have to care mostly about that. Um, and so I think the opportunities that opened up were, uh, I don't know. I mean, there, there were teachers, yeah, always, you know, there were like extra work studies and, you know, hey, you should come to London and do this internship thing or whatever. But I didn't do those things. For me, it was more the biggest thing that I got out of it was uh, this desire to learn. And it sounds so silly because I think you have to un- you have to feel it to really understand it what that means when you didn't have it before and now you do and it has to be created it's something that you have to like create as you go and, I, but yeah. I I I loved learning and at no point in school did I ever feel like I was actually learning things that like I ever cared about so I mean I I totally get what you're saying because I was like I we were talking about this last night off air uh chen and i were talking about how like i always viewed school as a game of just like it has to be a game because and you negotiate with your teachers at the end when you're yeah, about to fail the class to, yeah yeah because you're like well there's a's and b's and there's like whatever so like those are the things that you optimize for and like you figure out and like you can't do everything and you need to figure out how to like live your life and also try to like get the best grades you can like so that's like how i always viewed it so like to, the idea for i'd say i'd say most college students on average are not in college to learn Oh, no way. Generally speaking. No, they're not. They're not. But what you just mentioned, like all throughout high school, you weren't, it was, you weren't super interested in the, in the material, right? Yeah. This is important. So this is what I learned. Uh, when I, when I was, I wanted to be number one. I always wanted, I wanted to be the, I actually just, I didn't at first care that much about learning. I wanted to just be the best at this thing. And then it felt good to learn. I was like, whoa, this is exciting. And it's on its own. But at first I just want to be the best. And so to be the best, I had to look at material and convince myself that I cared about it, which you'll be surprised how good you are at doing that. Yeah. If you just really dig into something and learn about maybe where it came from and, and why the, the teacher teaching it cares about it, you ask them, actually just ask them that question, go to office hours and be like, hey, what's exciting about this to you? And, and I don't know, I, 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 I found it easier and easier to actually be interested in stuff. Um, if you, It's this, this switch in, in your brain. I actually had a, a college professor once who said to me, I said to the class, you know, she said a lot of people frame philosophy versus have this uh, philosophy versus psychology framing. And they say people who are good at psychology are bad at philosophy and people who are good at philosophy are bad at psychology. This is a philosophy class. And if you're one of those people, you know, who who uh, is just more of a psychology person, I would say this. um, Get over it. Just like (laughs) philosophy. And it was this weird thing where you're like, wait, can she say that even is that even allowed like what is just what just happened here uh and i mean she was kind of giving you the that you have to just force yourself to like it i don't know there's no other way to it sounds yeah. crazy but i think that's just what you have to do but did you ever have the so this was kind of the constant when will i use this i mean like that's probably the most like popular phrase of any school child ever for their whole lives like well when will i use this when will i when will i use this were you thinking about ways of how you could apply this stuff or were you just like, I want to fill my brain with as much interesting stuff? Well, at first I was like, I just really, I want to be the best. And this was just how to do that. And then after that, it was like, I was just finding all these connections between all the different classes I was taking and I was applying them in different ways. It was just really fascinating to me. What was your major? Uh, I made my own major. I went into an honors program my third year. Uh, it was like an honors make your own major program. And I studied storytelling in 20th century American politics. So specifically how the shift from a primarily print-based culture to a primarily film-based storytelling culture affected the way we talked about politics. So you're reading a lot of McLuhan or like what was the like uh, reading I, material you it, came it, up with? So 
the way my approach to it was I studied literature and I studied film and, uh, and then, uh, I studied, uh, in part also history. Um, and I drew my own kind of inferences. I looked a lot at things that everyone talks about, like, uh, the, uh, this was a long time ago, um, the Nixon Kennedy debate and stuff like this and what were per- perceptions, how, how do they change? And, I, and then what I looked at, um, were film adaptation, uh, film adaptations. So, uh, Lolita, for example, how does that book open versus how does the movie open? Uh, how do you convey emotion differently with words than you do with, with film? And, uh, I think film is, well, this was, again, this was a thesis that I wrote a long time ago. I'm not even, I haven't thought about it in a while, so I'm not sure what I even think these days, but then <laughs> it, but the do, feeling was that, that film was much more, uh, manipulative and, um, it, it was much easier to, to, to create an emotional, compelling argument in any direction in film than it was uh, in in literature. There's just words. There's more of them, and it's harder to hide behind things that don't make sense. You have to actually. It's it's you don't have to, but it's harder to build uh, a fake argument that that resonates intellectually than it is to uh, create you know a short clip of film that um, yeah it does the trick. So. Uh, yes, I studied that, but it was just an excuse, I think, to study a lot of interesting stuff. Gotcha. So following those passions and those interests, you jumped from there to Penguin? Or what was the, what was the move uh, brief from... Brief interlude. I taught English in Spain for after I graduated, and then I moved back to New York City. Gotcha. Um, so which, what's... Uh, yeah, I would love to hear like about what the... How did you jump to Penguin, and then how did you transition from Penguin to the uh, West Coast venture capital world? Yeah, um, so Penguin was uh, really just, I, I wanted to get into publishing because I wanted to publish books myself. And it was just, I, I start, I think one summer I, I wrote a short story and I submitted it to like 30 literary journals and they all rejected me. And Any personalized rejections or just template? Mm, template rejections. Uh, and, the, and the first impulse that everyone has as a writer is to lament this whole process and to rage against the system and to be like, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know. And you say that over and over again and you're so mad about it. And then one day I was kind of yelling about this and I realized like, okay, wait, but I know how this works then. It's not about, <laughs> if it's not about what you know, it's about who you know, I just have to know more people <laughs> and I need to know people specifically where I'm publishing. So, okay, I'll just get a job in publishing. Sure. Uh, and, I, and I went out to get a job. Uh, I started interviewing for uh, positions as an editorial assistant at any publishing firm. I didn't care which, I just wanted to know how this worked. And while I was doing that, I got an internship at a publishing house called Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which is like a literary type uh, publishing house. Um, interviewed, took an informational, I took an informational interview with a, a guy named Mitch Horowitz, who is one of the preeminent occult scholars. Oh, yeah. Or occult writers. Neville and like a couple other, yeah. Writers, and, yeah. And he's in, in America. He's great. He he owns his own imprint and publishing company. Well, so he works at Tarcher. I'm not, I haven't checked in with him in a while. He's got... Gildan Media is what he does with a lot of his like uh, audiobooks and stuff. But okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got to check back in with him. It's, it's been a bit, but I mean, he is this guy who would rock... Really interesting guy. A Doors t-shirt and like a suit jacket and a bowler hat. And he would do these occult walking tours of New York and talked a lot about the stuff called New Thought. Um, the New Thought movement is pretty much the, I guess, philosophical core of stuff like The Secret, uh, that book, The Secret. Um, but it's super American tradition. It's very old. Uh, and I thought it was interesting, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't looking to be an occult scholar. I right. was looking to find editors and 
took an informational interview. We talked about books, went home, and then an opportunity came up to work as an editorial assistant. So did that for uh, a few years, became a, an editorial assistant at an imprint for really just self-help books, um, but also t- technology and humor to an extent. Um, just like we did some funny books and, and some like how is technology impacting the world books. Cool. How are we seeing? Oh, good. So when you get the 30 no's now that you've been in publishing yeah, and you get the template responses, does anyone read those? Like, uh, does anyone read what the slush pile before they give the template response? Yeah. No, it's like, it's almost useless. There's no reason to ever. So there's always an anecdote. There's the one out of a thousand people who, who break in this way. I just do not think you break into publishing by sending your manuscript unsolicited to an editor. It does not work that way. You have to get an agent. Well, when I was there, you had the, the way the way in was getting an agent and then having your agent get you to an editor or you're an internet phenomenon. You're famous in your yeah. own right. And then any editor will talk to you. Um, I, you, there's no, the most frustrating thing about writing. I think probably every creative endeavor is there is no ladder to success. You cannot, uh, you you cannot start as a junior assistant novelist and then do that for a while and then you're an assistant and then you're a senior and then you're the CEO and you publish a book. It's it doesn't work that yeah. way. You have to just publish the book and you have to get people to care about the book. Uh, and things like agents and editors are these um, these ways to to kind of bring you through the noise to like make you a little bit louder than the masses of people who are self-publishing things. Um, and the way that you get them is different. Everyone is different. It's like you maybe were just really great on Twitter or you had this one article, the, the, there was this or short story. There was the cat story in the New Yorker, the cat person story. It was a great short story. Um, uh, that girl was writing for years and, and, and she couldn't get an agent. And now she's got this crazy million dollar book deal. I think I have to look at the details, but it's a lot, it's a sure. lot of money and she has a book deal. Um, everyone's yeah. Everyone's journey to this stuff is, is totally different. So that's, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, but the idea that incrementalism is not something that exists in a lot of different industries like mm-hmm. this. Like it's a basically like, not only do you have to orchestrate a hit, but it's something that takes years and years of planning for, would you say one breakout success? Typically yeah, it's, is. it's all that. It's always just the one break. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the one thing that's going to, that's going to introduce you to a lot of people who can help you right for the rest of your career. Gotcha. In a way that generates FOMO for the other people that might help you. And like, is there, I, there is some probably element of that. Yeah. I, I, I think, um, but I think all that stuff is, you know, you can worry about it later. The, the, the most important thing is just that, you know, people who can, who can help you publish your, your stuff. And the way that you do that is by uh, impressing them in, right. in in some way with your followers or your ability to, to attract attention, um, especially on the internet. I feel like that's the new, the new trend now has been towards your presence. Like your, what is your footprint when I Google you? Does it right. look like you have a lot of followers and does it look like you can sell books yourself? Gotcha. That's yeah, that's really interesting. What is the like breaking point where it's like the the CEO of the book publishing company or whoever it is like, man, that one really took off. Is it like is it like a ratio of advance to book sales in the first month? Is it like like what is yeah. the so uh I think everything really you have all these editors who really care about the material, of course, and they just, you know, only focus on the writing and all this kind of stuff. But I think 
the way that you sell a book internally, which you have to do um, to like the sales team, uh, is you, you get them excited by bringing them an author who can sell their own book. So that's that's the main thing. That's the main thing. If you can't do that, if you're just a new author, and new authors are published all the time with no audience. It's just a good book that happens all the time. Yeah. I, that I have no insight into the. There is I have no insight into the calculus there because there is no insight into the calculus there. Yeah. And and hoping that you're going to be the one in a hundred thousand that gets to be that person who has no audience, no platform, just an, a great book. There are lots of people with great books who never get published. You have to yeah. find an interesting way to get their attention. Once you have a platform, someone somewhere else. So I think most CEOs of huge companies in Silicon Valley, right? Like they're going to have a much easier time uh, publishing a book. If you're, if you're really successful in some other field, that's, that's interesting to people. If you have fans or followers, so really anyone on TV has yep. such an easy time of, of, uh, of, of getting a book deal. Someone wants to publish your book. If you're a TV personality with, with a, a huge fan base, I mean, any one of the real housewives, I'm sure could get a book deal tomorrow. Um, you know, most of them ha- have some kind of deal like that. Uh, that's the thing that's attractive to, to, to the business side of things. It's hard to sell books and no one wants to admit that, uh, that they're lazy um, <laughs> and they don't want to spend a lot of t- t- time strategizing on marketing and PR or whatever. They want a book that sells itself. Yeah. Gotcha. So what was the transition like and when did you come to the West Coast and when did the idea that venture capital was this industry that you could either work in or join, how'd that get on your radar? Yeah. Um, never knew anything about venture capital or the technology industry. I was super, yeah, super, super interested in technology from the time I was a kid. I was obsessed with Star Trek. And, um, then later on, as I got older, it would be like stuff like the matrix was my jam. So incredible. When um, out. just mind blowing, mind blowing. <laughs> I remember where I was, <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess I was yeah 14 years old. Like I've never seen anything like that in yeah. my life. Um, Can I tell a quick major yes. story? Oh, story. yeah, let's do it. So we, uh, Grand Lake Theater, famous theater in Oakland. It's like really cool. If, uh, it's like a Renaissance style. And uh, we're leaving, like me and my dad. And my dad's like, we're walking down the street and he's doing like, ninja moves with his hands like joking around um and some kids are getting uh ice cream at like the this like ice cream shop nearby and like my dad's just kind of like walking around like messing around being stupid and as we're getting into the car they all have banana splits and they pelt our car with like five banana splits as we like drive away it was so random i'm like glitch yeah, it, was, they, it was a glitch of the matrix yeah. i know i was like five this is, five yeah. of them there was only one yeah i know it's like they're yeah. one step away from being agents man that's yeah, i know agent like behavior you guys was, just made it out of there yeah. uh damn uh yeah so i was uh yeah i was super into technology and the way that it could be applied in in the world uh especially in liberating ways that it could be applied the internet for example it sounds so trite in 2018 to be like the internet's important but um i, I don't know it's well, just it's so transformative though once you like get out and like travel around a little bit yeah. you realize how uh, yeah how different and weird and wonderful it could be but so. certainly then yeah and in 2008 people were still not even on twitter i was right. i started our twitter account at, at penguin and they were like this is stupid why would we ever do this and i i meanwhile was judging authors based on right their their Twitter presence. I was like, this is, this is a huge deal. Um, this is a metric into someone's audience. You have an audience metric right now. We've never had that before. Um, uh, but separately I was, you know, I was really interested in anarcho-capitalist philosophy. 
Um, so and you get the anarchist cookbook uh, pretty nope. early on your. Uh, so anarcho capitalism is a specific kind of libertarian-ish philosophy. I mean, sure. anarcho capitalists would hate it if you call them a libertarian. They consider this, themselves uh, to be much more pure than that. Gotcha. Um, it is a super radical. Um, uh, how do I describe anarcho capitalism? I mean, it's just the words anarchy and capitalism. They're that's basically the philosophy but there are all these famous writers it's like you have Murray and Rothbard and Ayn Rand is kind of you can kind of put her in there she's an objectivist but there's a lot of overlap and so I started kind of looking for people who I could talk to about this stuff and poking around online and I considered myself a libertarian back then and I was really committed to finding a libertarian book I thought that libertarianism was about to have a moment this was before Ron Paul um, and I was like this is I think, I think, I think it's going to blow up. I think, I think young people are going to like this and there needs to be some kind of book, um, to represent it. And I ended up reading this essay by Peter Thiel called the education, uh, of a libertarian. Oh, Cato Institute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was one of his first controversial ones. I I think. Yeah. But I didn't even follow the controversy. I, I was, no one seemed to care about what I cared about, which was the Seasteading Institute. Right. This idea that you, so he he had funded a nonprofit. Um, so for everybody that's not quite up to speed, uh, Seasteading. Yeah. So what, the Seasteading is, is a nonprofit organization committed to, uh, I don't know, building is the right word, but certainly popularizing the idea of building floating, totally autonomous cities in the middle of the ocean. So imagine thousands of micro governments um, you just go out there with a few boats into the sea and you strap them together. And now you guys are a nation because there's, it's, it's open water. It's there, there, there are no, no country owns the ocean. Uh, so now you're a nation and you can create whatever set of rules you want. You can follow them however you choose. And if you don't like it, you just untether your boat and move to the other boat down the street that has a better government. And the idea was, uh, to create a free market for government and the best one would win. Super exciting to me. I was 23. I believed that they were going to do this imminently, uh, and I wanted to meet everyone involved in it. Um, but I also, in that essay, learned about the idea of people who are rich putting their money into really cool technologies. Right. Um, and taking risk with it. And, well, I didn't even... So at that point, I was not even thinking about risk. I was just... I think I really believed that all this stuff would just work. Right. Um, and it wasn't a risk at all. It was just brilliant. It was the future, and it just needed people... To, to give them capital to do stuff with right. it. I don't know, I was younger. Um, and uh, and so I did two things. I wrote the Seasetting Institute and I said, hey, I will do anything you want really for free. I just want to uh, meet more anarcho-capitalists committed to building floating cities in the middle of the ocean. Seems sweet. Um, like all 23-year-olds do. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then separately of that, I wrote uh, uh, I wrote Peter. And I just uh, thanked him for doing what he did. I was like, hey, this is really cool. Did you cite the essay or did you provide any I did, yeah. I said, I read this. It's really awesome. Thanks for doing what you're doing. I didn't even know that you know people like you existed, basically. Uh, I'd gotten into the habit at, at, at Penguin of just writing to people who I thought were interesting because I found out that they tend, they would answer. Right. More often than not, they would they would be like, hey, thanks. And Especially if you about did whatever. the research too, to yeah. Like, yeah, show them that. Like, hey, tip from the mission. This is a mission tip for this episode to the <laughs> listeners. If you appreciate what someone is doing in the world, tell them thank you for doing it because like you most might be people, surprised how yeah, they, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The heroes are closer to you than you think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, so, I mean, and this one was, I kind of didn't, 
this was a weird one. I didn't know anyone like him. I didn't know anything about the technology industry. I'd been previously been, I'd reach out to writers and just, you know, talk to them about whatever their work was and never wanted anything from it. I just thought it was, it was like an interesting, I just did it. Cause it was like, Oh, I can just start the conversation, just talk yeah. to the writer. And I was genuinely interested in the ideas. He wasn't a professional writer. I didn't expect anything in return, but he responded. And by the time he responded, the Seasteading Institute had already responded and they asked me to volunteer for them on the capacity of both, uh, uh, writing. I offered to clean up their Wikipedia page nice. and, uh, and community. They wanted me to start doing, uh, mixers for them in New York city. They were based in San Francisco and I was living in New York at the time. Um, and so when Peter responded to my note, uh, I was like, Hey, cool. Also now I'm working for the C-Setting Institute Well, I'm volunteering for the C-Setting Institute kind of started up a conversation. We talked about libertarian stuff ish and like life stuff who do you, who are you basically what do you do and it was cordial and not super deep and it lasted a couple of notes and then it stopped and that was i was like cool didn't expect that and didn't expect to ever hear from him again really um and then he just showed up to the first mixer that i did for the c-setting institute uh i didn't even invite him to it i was like that's a billionaire he's going to be way too busy to come sure. to like a drinks thing for the c-setting institute with a bunch of i don't know anarcho-capitalist nerds <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know that's like exactly what Peter loves to do uh, is just meet people who are doing weird shit and talk about it with them. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, we just talked all night. Uh, just him and I, it was like philosophy. It was politics, but then like really it was philosophy. Um, and uh, I was thinking, I'm like, I'm going to publish this guy's book. He mentioned that he had a book. And I'm like, that's awesome. Like, this is how it's going to happen. This guy who I think is so cool is working on this book. And uh, it's a book that ended up not happening. Was this but, the PayPal book or the? It's it a book that never came into being. Okay, gotcha. Uh, with a co-author that I don't even want to bring up because I'm not even sure. I don't know where the project is right now, so I don't want to. Gotcha. But uh, it's certainly I don't I don't think it's going to happen now. Um, but uh, I'm thinking he's like, yeah, I've got this book or whatever, and I'm like, and he, and he says. I just don't know anything about publishing. And I was like, well, that's great because I know, <laughs> let me tell you, I, I know everything about publishing. We should get coffee and I'll just tell you everything about publishing. I'll tell you exactly how to get this book published. Um, and in the back of my mind, I'm like the way you're going to get it published is I'm going to publish it. Yeah. But I'll tell, and I, and I, I did, I was committed to telling him, you know, get an agent. You're going to have no problem getting attention. But I thought, you know, like he has met me and he knows that I care about the things that he cares about and he'll choose me over all these other people. Uh, so we met for coffee uh, and we talked about the book almost not at all. It was again, just a philosophy. It was like an hour talking about philosophy and it was an exhilarating, exciting conversation. And then it just, it just became a friendship. And every few months he was in New York, we get coffee. Um, and eventually he asked me to work for founders fund. Um, and it, it was somewhere around that point that I realized, okay, there was never a book. It was like this long vetting process. Sure. Um, and, uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, that was, that's, that. that's something that's really interesting too, is like the art of meeting people and then getting to know them over a period of months and years seems to be lost in the modern, I guess, like professional tech world. Um, people forget that that's an option. People are always like, you know, I'm applying to YC next month. I need to find a co-founder. It's just like, uh, do you feel like that's, that art is being lost or is that always going on behind the scenes? What's your... What's your take on that? Because like for me, that's refreshing. That's how I like to get to know people. Uh, but it seems like so many people like to just, yeah, kind of like bang on the table until they find the co-founder. The, I the think that it's definitely, 
I mean, there's a there's a mix here. A lot of people just want recruiters to bring them talent and not to have to think about it. Um, but probably the best CEOs are all recruiting constantly. Uh, it's just a part of their. It's baked into it's the way they that they interact yeah. with people. I think it's like you're. You, the, I think also that a part of that is like I'm the. In my experience, the most brilliant business people I've met, the most successful people I've met. The thing that they're successful at is core to who they are. So if your work is core to who you are, then when you meet people who you love, you want to work with them. You're like, right. oh, I, you're so smart. You like you should do this with me. Um, it's not. It's it doesn't. It sounds almost mercenary when you talk about recruiting all the time, but it's not that. It's like it's they genuinely thing. love like what it, they're doing and yeah. they want to bring people into their life. This is how they bring people into their life is yeah. through their work. And it's, I mean, it's how you collaborate and in my mind anyways, do friend friendly things. Um, that's how you have fun with people. It's like you commit to working on a project together or creating something new and putting it out. Like that's far more rewarding than just, you know, getting drunk with somebody on a, I think that's true. A Friday night, but uh, although getting drunk on Friday night, can could, be, could I do a really quick fun. recap of like the Mike's five list of things that takeaways. I just, five takeaways that I just found super interesting. Do. Um, so like number one, you learned as much as you could. Uh, number two, you like got domain expertise in an industry. Number three, you reached out cold to compliment someone that you appreciated with an expectation of nothing in return. Number four, you volunteered to help with a specific ask that you had domain expertise in. And number five, like you stayed relevant and not pushy. And it's like, if that, well said. yeah, if that is how you land a job, it's like a lot of people are doing it the wrong way. <laughs> That's the long Yeah, I, I would say so. But, you know, people ask me how to break into venture capital. I'm always like, I have no idea because I never even knew what it was. That's not what I was trying to do. I was just following things that I was interested in. Um, and that, you just answered the question. Yeah, that's, that's the question. Big, that's the question and the answer. The things that you're naturally interested in, you might be predisposition to be pretty good at. Um, so what how the world kind of changed? Because uh, I've been fortunate enough to be in the Founders Fund office, go to some of the events that you create, that you host. And it's always uh, like, it's a relief and so much fun for me because um, a lot like you mentioned earlier, not in the example of like, I wasn't uh, you know craving like gay people, but I was craving people that um, were authentic and yeah. who really cared about things and were passionate about things. So when I finally made my way out here, uh, met you, started talking to you, meeting other people in the the Founders Fund network, the Telosphere, whatever you want to call it, um, it was just refreshing because people were so like they cared about things. They were yeah. sincere. And I felt like I'd been, uh, hadn't, you know, encountered that before. So what was that world change uh, for you? Like, so I, I think, so I, I don't, I moved out of San Francisco expecting all of San Francisco to be filled with people who are just like Peter. Right. And what I found was Peter was an anomaly, uh, <laughs> everywhere, including San Francisco. Sure. That having been said, there was a lot more room in San Francisco to be weird and specifically in in the orbit of, of Peter. I think Peter really gives per, people not even permission. There's an expectation that you are your own person and that you think for yourself and that you're different than other people. Um, that's the reason that you're here. Right. And so it, it's it's like he, that's the bat signal that's up in the air. And so it attracts I think it attracts really, it attracts a lot of crazy people, yeah. <laughs> um, but it also attracts a lot of, of really, I think the best people ever that I've ever met. And, um, and it's just about building channels for them to like find you and building events for them to just come to and asking your friends who are super interesting. Um, hey, 
who has to come to this? Like, right. like who's who's doing something really cool or who thinks about something really weird, uh, who is also friendly, uh, who would like to hang out with us? Um, yeah, yeah, I think he just, most of it comes from just, I mean, it's not just Peter, it's like Founders Fund also has, has built up this, I think, pretty unique, weird, uh, I'm saying weird a lot, but I, I mean that in a, in a, what I mean by weird is unique, just uh, different. Yeah. yeah. Just, but I think there's something else there and it's like people who are genuinely helpful. I think yeah. that that's like a huge kind of like misnomer of people who want to be like in the in thing or like whatever, or whatever the like industry is. What's different. I think the most about like this type of atmosphere is people are so willing to help each other. And I think like C blank writes about this a lot of just like, the Valley is one of the places where like you can really go like, and there's this idea of like, Hey, I'm going to help you out. Cause I'm in the struggle too. Yeah. I think that's totally true. And that's not specific, certainly to our community. I think that it is, yeah, that's like a value. Yeah. That's like a technology industry thing. I think it happens for two reasons. One, because actually we have so much out here. There, there are so many resources. People don't feel super competitive with each other. And even if they are in direct competition, it seems like people are still doing okay. They're more willing to share Two, I think this is a super value oriented place. People are interested in building new things. That's a, that's a, that's a big, that's a big filter. Uh, if that's specifically your thing is that you want to build things that have a radical impact and change the way everything is done. Uh, I mean that directly counters the status quo bias of almost all of us, which is to keep things the way they are, even if they're not really working. Um, it's a weird kind of person already who's, who's attracted to that. I think it's being diluted right now, uh, just cause there is so money, uh, so much, just because there is so much money. It's Freudian. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're saying. No, because there is so much money. Uh, I think you're now just attracting people who, um, are, are interested in, in kind of capturing a piece of that, riding the wave in some way. You get a lot of MBAs out here now. Um, this is actually sort of the MBA path. It used to be banking it's not that at all now it's like get your mba and then start a company and get money in silicon valley um it's been that way for a handful of years dynamics changing somewhat but yeah the reason why is so i agree but the reason why is because getting an mba is you do nothing for two years so you can just think of ideas and talk to other people who have gone through some amount of like they're probably pretty smart and you get to just jam on shit for two years like people like i I mean this is just my opinion but I think that people have now like, I'm I'm never going to get an MBA. I, I have no desire to do so. But the idea of hitting a two-year pause button on your career and you get to go choose so something tempting. completely out, like different, yeah. and, you, have, and you, ha- you don't have to have any reason to change. And everyone's like, oh, well, yeah, no, I just shifted my focus. Like that, the tear button is a great idea. And it's a great thing for people who I think like, we get caught in like, oh, I'm 35 and like this is it for the next 30 years of my life is in this one career. I think that that part of the MBA of like having two years to do that does make it really interesting. But like that that's that you should go start a company because you're doing that is like the most like asinine idea. Yeah. And on this on the even on the time thing, taking the break, I don't really understand. I definitely agree with that, that that's powerful but I don't know why you have to do it there in that context. And I don't mm-hmm. know why you have to pay for it. Um, especially mm-hmm. because most of the reason you go to college is for the network and at a place like Stanford for your, uh, undergraduate degree or something. So for, for your like Stanford undergrad, I think that network is, is powerful and really, really uh, an amazing asset. 
But for your MBA, you're surrounded by people who are trying to build companies. Wouldn't it make more sense yeah. just to go work at a startup and meet Where a bunch of people doing. who are doing the same thing? And get paid to do it. And I mean, that's, it's like, and you get paid to do it, but people, the startup culture is sort of, I mean, you go and join a startup. If you love it, you stay. If you don't, you find another startup. Um, it's, it's kind of, that's, I mean, it just makes more sense, I think, to, to, to do, do that do, if do that's what compl- you want oh if you completely want to, if you yeah. want to start a company it definitely makes more sense what's the reason you think that people don't do that do you think it's generally like the fear of getting to the front lines of capitalism and seeing what things are really going on do you think it's no i think uh, it's because people want to believe that there's a ladder gotcha, they really gotcha. and, and the mba that they're on the right this, ladder this, the, the right mba is, reminds me a lot of the mfa people will get their mfa in writing and it's like why would you do that why would you pay money to go and write um, when you're trying to get paid to write, it makes it's the exact opposite thing. And so the the only reason is because you're you really 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 want to believe that the world is structured in a way that it is just fundamentally not. You want to believe that you can go and get this credential and that will open a door for you. It's a very easy thing that we understand because we've been in school our whole lives and we're kind of taught to think this way. Um, but the, there yeah, there's there's no ladder. There is no credential. Yep. Um, well, I guess there are credentials that help, actually. Sure, sure. Uh, but uh, get getting funding, like yeah. weirdly, like getting funding is a is a brandish credential right. that works. Oh, it's a huge. Uh, at this point, huge. like Y That's Combinator is yeah. is a credential that that I mean, investors will give you money just because of that. Um, not us. We care about the company we're investing in. But right. there are people who do not care. Yeah. It's like, oh, Y Combinator company done. Get get, get me in there. Um, and the, Y Combinator puts out a lot of great companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but it's. Uh, the yeah the, the credentialing thing is i think at an mba uh, it's just silly well the other thing too like i think that with the mba is like if you personally need a forcing function to give you skin in the game to learn like if you need to say like i actually want to go just like dive into the books for two years because like i can't do that while i'm like going through the rat mm-hmm. race or i know where these programs feed and i want to go to those companies yeah like, no exactly great great path for it but that's the thing is like and again it's not the wrong answer but like the idea is like with 200 grand or whatever it is it's like you could go move to 15 different countries over the next two years and just sit there and like learn the trends of the world listen to the mission daily podcast you know <laughs> yeah. do like do whatever you want yeah. with that much money it's like if you're investing in yourself go for it yeah or you could just live in san francisco and spend all of your time trying to meet people who are doing things that are actually relevant to starting companies and yes. learning from them and yes. being friends like you could spend your full time you could you could dedicate yourself full time to building a network relevant a network of friends who actually could help you do what you want to do. Yep. Um, whereas, you know, at, at an, I think I think at business school, all you're meeting are a bunch of people who also are really hoping for, for some kind of shortcut. Well said. Yeah, wishful thinking, not the best choice. So That having been said, some MBAs are great and they go on to do great oh, things. Completely. But yeah. I just, that's the last place that I would start. Lots of great folks. Yeah, for sure. So at Founders Fund, one of the things that I'm always struck by when uh, you put on an event or anything like that is it's well put together. It's well done. It's fun. So user experiences in the real world, a lot of people and companies and everyone that's out there listening right now has forgotten that amazing in-person events are still like, they're still where it's at. That's how like friendships, camaraderie, teams are built. So could you share some insights, some stories about your thought process for putting on an event or lessons learned, crazy stories, um, yeah. anything like that. So I just, I don't do anything that I, I don't want to go to myself. Sure. I just, if it's fun for me, then I'm, I'm kind of like, oh, that'll be fun for other people. So if it's, whether it's, you know, we did a screening of Ready Player One at the Alamo Draft House and 
we brought in Palmer Lucky and he did an interview with uh, the author of the book in VR. And I just thought, okay, that, you know, that's a cool thing that I want to go to. And my yeah. friends definitely are going to want to go to that. Uh, and so that's, that's where you start is just doing something that you think is cool. And that tends to not be, let's get drinks and talk about SAS <laughs> at this bar that no one cares about in Soma. Right. Um, so yeah, I start there. And then when I send out the emails, I don't mass email people. I, I have, you know, the information that needs to be conveyed. Um, but I also try and it's personalize, personalize them a yeah, little bit. It's a personalized bit. message, which again is yeah. like, yeah, I get a really important uh, UX thing. So, And at this point, I would say 60, 65% of the people that I'm inviting to these things, I already have a relationship with. Um, and the rest of them are people that I'm looking to have a relationship with or someone at my firm is looking to have a relationship with or continue a relationship with. Um, so yeah, it's just like a friendly, It's a, I try and go with a, a friendlier email i guess gotcha. uh, friendly more personal email um and then i just have a bunch of amazing people that i work with it's like our all of our eas it's like you have alex silverman kaylee um it, it, at founders fund is incredible on a lot of stuff that i've been working on uh mckenzie is, an, is another one um elena uh cassandra i mean this is like the whole team is just filled with people who um are just crackerjack at operational stuff so everything from transportation, I think Alex, we're running a laser. T- <laughs> we're tomorrow morning. Um, Can't wait. I'm taking like 40 people on a ferry to Angel Island where we will play laser tag in an abandoned hospital. Um, Old military base. It's like the whole setup is yeah crazy. Last and, time we were there, the Blue Angels were flying over during Fleet Week. It was yeah, yeah that pretty, was wild. Pretty surreal. I was like flashbacks to the rock, just yeah, nonstop. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Alex, uh, I mean Alex is chartering a ferry and she got you know, like food coming in and um I, I think you have to just work with someone you gotta make sure that you're working with someone who's really i'm not a detail-oriented type person and so, because i know that you i have to work with people who are sure That's, i have to collaborate with people who are yes. and so for this event for example it's like me and alex together are a really great team uh, and she covers all of that kind of stuff she even sees things that i don't see or don't see coming and, and, and she protects me really from all the you know the the, the things that i don't know and aren't or not good at so so i think yeah if you, if you want a, an event first make sure that it's fun to you then invite cool people yeah. uh personalize it so they know you kind of immediately set the emotional tone of the event which is personal and friendly and intimate um you know you don't want to be mass emailing a hundred people to, to to go to something it's like who are you even trying to, to bring right. to this or uh um and i certainly wouldn't go to something where i don't know the person and they're sending a mass email. I've never, I get invited. People are always like, join my webinar or come to this bar to, to network with people interested in biology. And it's like, I don't, I mean, I'm interested in biology, but I don't want to go to an event where all it takes is like a mass email to a thousand people on an ambiguous topic. So it's like personal, specific, fun, and then have someone who's good at all the stuff that you're not good at helping you out. But see, there's like, but that's a, pretty interesting distinction because like you were doing events like events around like seasteading right is like that's a pretty specific topic right so yeah. it's like the people there and like the people they are inviting is like something very specific whereas like you said having you know uh whatever at a wine wine gallery or something like that and talking about like biology i think you have to really know why you're doing it and i think a lot of people who are throwing these boring events don't have don't a reason, have a reason to do bored. it 
They, yeah. they just think that they're supposed to because they, they, they're copying what other people have done. Oh, a venture capital firm is supposed to throw drink things. And so let's go to a bar and drink and invite our founders to this thing or have a CEO summit. Um, you know, every venture capital firm has a CEO summit and almost all of them are bad. Uh, and, and the reason is because they don't even want to do it themselves. They just want to have done it. They want to say that these great CEOs came to their event. Um, but when I throw, uh, we throw, uh, we do this thing called symposium previously F 50. Um, it's, we bring 50 people to a remote location. Uh, this year we're going to an Island up in the desolation sound in Canada. Um, they are highly curated. It is a handful of our founders, but also it's philosophers, scientists, technologists, writers. And we are there specifically to have a conversation about the future. What kind of future do we want to live in and how do we build it? And I think that active part is really important. Um, a lot of people talk about the future and how great it's going to be, but not many people talk about how we're going to get there. And, uh, and that framing, I think, is, is really important. You bring people who are committed to that specific question, to answering that question, to working on those things. Um, and not just talking about it, but they're, they have a track record of actually doing yes, something about yes, it. Yeah. yeah, and these people do. That's the thing. So, so when you, at this point, it's, it's, you know, it's much easier because I've thrown them and they're pretty successful. So people know that they can count on you to be curating the event with interesting people. Um, but, but in the beginning, you kind of have to have to convey that in the, in the invitation, you have to be telling them why you're there and who's going to be there. Uh, you have to make absolutely sure that you convey that this is not going to be, you know, some like Forbes summit, um, with like 10,000 people who have nothing in common. Uh, you have to, except for thought leadership. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's your safe bet. It's like anyone who's ever talking about thought leadership, uh, <laughs> is not, a thought leader and probably it's, brutal. it's like, Sorry. but it's like the whole, it's like the entrepreneurship thing. It's like, how, Oh, I really want to be a VC. It's like, that's not a thing. I really want to be an entrepreneur. Like that's not a thing. Yes. Like, it's like yeah. all these things of like, yeah, it's soothing. Yeah. Know? The entrepreneur one is, is really crazy when people just they, with no explanation, but they do want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. It's just because it now does have this interesting social cachet. Um, so Ian and I were talking about this and I am just blown away. The more enterprise people and the more people I meet at big tech companies, the more I can't believe the average entrepreneur, I'm not trying to be hypercritical, the average entrepreneur and founder has no idea how talented and skilled the people are at big companies. And it's like, yeah. it is not even close. Like if you start, uh, unfortunately I've gone to like one or two tech meetups, of course, like don't do that anymore. They're generally horrible. Um, unless you're going to an event like, you know, that has a lot of, thought behind it and you meet people who are doing entrepreneurship because it's the cool thing and it's just it's always like a heartbreak because they don't understand not just how competitive things are but um you know in terms of defining entrepreneurs as people who move resources from areas of low yield to high yield some of these people at big companies are super impressive and yeah, yeah. i mean they all have talent monopolies too right now so Completely. good luck building your company it's a struggle to start a company um, you are competing with Google, Facebook, Apple for engineers. Good luck. They're offering $250,000 a year. I was just talking to one uh, who uh, he just started a company, but he left an offer on the table from uh, Google. It was, it was $250,000 a year. And uh, I think something like $2 million after five years wow. working like that's, cr that's crazy. No yeah. startup obviously can come anywhere near that offer. So all of the promise is, it's on the value in the future of, sure. of your, your ownership stake. And um, that's a huge gamble for a lot of engineers who don't have any entrepreneurial ambition. They really just want a good job. 
So you have to come at them with, yeah, with a really sound, a really good reason, <laughs> uh, idea, uh, and, and a, a really good reason yeah. and a really solid plan to get to the future. So this is a great segue. Let's talk a little bit about the future, what you're excited about you, your podcast that you create for founders fund is called anatomy of next, where you do deep dives into topics that are vital to creating a better future with more opportunities, um, more positive change. What topics are on your radar? Um, is it Mars right now or what are you thinking about the most? Yeah. So uh, Anatomy of Next is our vehicle for kind of talking about the future and human potential. Um, kind of a channel or how you do how you describe it? Yeah, Anatomy of Next is definitely a channel on our website. It's a sub-brand. So it's like it's, a, it's definitely videos, it's the podcasts, a channel. Written. Yeah, we yeah. have all sorts of stuff kind of under that umbrella. But it's also, I think right now, uh, well, it's the, it's the name of our podcast and that's that's, I mean, by far the has the most attention. So that's sure. just what it's becoming is the name of our podcast. Um, and, uh, and this season, so last season was mini series. We hit a handful of topics all loosely related to the, the idea of, of, uh, this tension between dystopia and utopia. Um, how, uh, how do people talk about the future in our culture? It tends to be pretty dystopian, you know, in Hollywood, especially, uh, when's the last time you saw a movie about biotechnology that was framed as, Oh, this is great for us. It's always like Jurassic park, um, Gattaca or something worse. Uh, the unintended consequences are never, ever positive. Right. Right. So I wanted to challenge those ideas, bring in experts from our community to kind of myth bust the horrific stories about the future that we tell ourselves. Sure. Um, but this season I, I wanted to do something much more, I, I guess like thematic, uh, and, tied up together i talked a lot about utopia in the first season in the second season i wanted to kind of talk about what does that look like to me and the vehicle for that is mars it's this question of how do we get to mars how do we colonize it and then how do we terraform the planet how do we make it how do we make the martian environment like the earth environment how do we build an atmosphere how do we build oceans how do we grow forests on mars how do we grow life on mars um how do we grow people on mars uh, what does life look like on Mars? What does a city on Mars look like? How would you build it differently? If you could build a city right now from scratch for a million people, what's the the most superior way mm-hmm. uh, to do that? What's what's the best form of public transportation, the best form of education, energy, uh, health, all these things? Um, I think that right now on Earth, it's really hard to change something as simple as you know building a tunnel underneath your city. Right. People freak out uh, about change. On the frontier, you have to do that. There's nothing there. So if you have to build something, you will necessarily, uh, or if, if you're in a place with nothing there, you necessarily have to build new things. And uh, and then I think what you'll choose to build are, are the best things. Right. Um, cool. Awesome. Mike, this was so great. Thanks for taking the time. And we spanned a lot of different topics, your upbringing, how you got started, careers, moving into VC, and a glimpse of the future. So, And Anatomy of Next. Yes. Go listen to it. Go check it out. One of our favorite podcasts. And thanks so much for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.